Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Hear now God's Word. And you He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. I ran across a quotation from Pastor John MacArthur yesterday, and it was helpful to me, and I'll just read it to you. A preacher is not a chef. He is a waiter. God does not want you to make the meal. He just wants you to deliver it without messing it up. That's all. We are servants under divine commission. And so I hope that that's what we will do today as we open up the Word of God. In the first chapter of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul has given us a concise theological summary of God's plan of salvation. Verses 9 and 10 provide a summary of the theme of this entire letter. Having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together all uh, gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. He makes it clear that God's plan and the execution of that plan are central and primary. And he also tells us that this is driven by God's grace as he says in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace. All of this is through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is at the center. This is the... uh, And He is the... uh, He is exclusive in this work of salvation. There is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. No one comes to the Father but by Him. This is an exclusive declaration. In verse 14, Paul refers, excuse me, in in the first 14 verses of this chapter, Paul refers to the Lord Jesus 15 times. In verse 3, Paul told us what it is that God has done for us and offers to us. He has blessed us, he said, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We have been pardoned. We have been forgiven, we have been adopted and made joint heirs with Christ, we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And Paul then concluded chapter 1 with a prayer of thanksgiving, thanking God for the faith and the love that he had seen demonstrated in these Ephesian Christians. And then he earnestly sought that God would grant them even more knowledge, more understanding, more wisdom, and enlightenment of the knowledge of God especially regarding their inheritance, as well as what he says here, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand 
in the heavenly places. And Paul concludes his prayer in chapter 1, reminding us that we are part of the body of Christ uh, in which Jesus is the head, and it is through the church that all of God's powerful plan is being accomplished. In chapter 2, Paul now turns to address how God uh, went about making both the Jews and the Gentiles one in Christ. How he brought the whole world together in Christ. First, he addressed the universal problem of sin that applies to both Jews and Gentiles. And then he's going to talk about in the second part of chapter 2, the covenant which the Jews had but the Gentiles were strangers to. And so this chapter begins with, and you, he made alive. It's all God, all the time. He overcomes all the obstacles. It took the power of God to resurrect Jesus from the dead, and it will require the same power to resurrect us from the dead. And so Paul begins with reminding us of our condition Before God began this saving work, we were dead in trespasses and sins. There's no home remedy for this. We were sick. When we're sick, uh, going to see a doctor can be frightening. We may fear the worst. In fact, in some cases, people just don't go to the doctor because they are afraid of what the doctor is going to tell them. They don't want to hear that, so if, maybe if I don't hear it, it'll just disappear. It'll go away. What if it's malignant? But you see, a correct and early diagnosis is often our only help, hope of finding a remedy. No diagnosis or a wrong diagnosis offers no hope at all. So, what is wrong with humanity. What's wrong with us? In the Apostle Paul's effort to provide an accurate, an accurate theology, he cuts right to the chase regarding man's moral condition. When man fell, he didn't just bump his head. He didn't just twist his ankle. He didn't scrape his arm. He fell all the way and he fell far. And as he hit the bottom... He died. Death is a separation from God. Remember, death doesn't mean that we cease to exist. Sometimes we think that way. Because when someone dies physically, we're separated from them, and it's as though they don't exist, but that's not true. They exist forever. They just are not existing in a way that we can commune with them and have interaction with them. For us... It is as though they cease to exist. In this case, sin separated us from God and the covenant, which is life. And, and so again, when, when we die, in this case we died before God, Adam was separated from God. We no longer can communicate. There is no longer communion. To live is to be in communion with God and or with men. In order for us to understand the greatness and the power of our salvation, then it is important that we begin with the depth of our condition. Before we can go up, we must go down. We do not enter this world neutral. 
Our story starts in a deep pit, and in Christ it ends in the heavenlies. Understanding the biblical doctrine of sin, then, is critical to our understanding things like the Incarnation. Why was it necessary? The cross. Why was it necessary? In fact, you can't understand life in this world if you don't understand sin. Every personal conflict, every war, every sickness and pain, every sorrow and grief is the result of what we are, not just what we do. It is the comprehensive, universal, all-pervasive problem of every person, every family, every city, every nation. The Bible's teaching on this is the only realistic explanation. All other views assert that man is making some kind of progress, albeit slow progress, toward perfection. Biological and social evolution, through education and technology and medicine, promise utopia down the road. All we need is a few million more years. You encouraged? But Paul asserts that man is a son of disobedience. And the result is death. The Bible tells us the truth about ourselves and about the world, the facts and nothing but the facts. Isn't it ironic that man, who starts with his hopeful view of utopia, is at the same time thoroughly pessimistic? The world is on a treadmill going nowhere. On the other hand, the biblical view, which starts, we might say, with pessimism, ends with an optimistic view, thanks to the gospel and the power of God. You know, if, just stop and think the simplicity of what's being asserted here. What is the number one enemy you face? You can think of all kinds of problems you might have tomorrow or next week or next year or the rest of your life, but there's one problem that trumps them all. Death. It won't matter how you handle all the rest of those if you can't handle that one. If you can't overcome that one. In the end, we're all dead. What if somebody could fix that? What if there was a remedy for that one? Puts all the rest of them in perspective, right? Well, that's what Paul is arguing here. So what does it mean to be dead in trespasses and sins? Paul is referring here to spiritual rather than physical death. That's, that's coming, of course. But we know this because he goes on to refer to the fact uh, that to our having walked and having conducted ourselves in a certain way as a result of this. And so he's talking about our separation from God because of sin. That's death. There is no stronger word or diagnosis than dead. Man is not in stable, serious, or even critical condition. He is expired. There is no life. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes this death in this way. What does this mean? The best way, I suppose, of defining death is to say that it is the exact opposite and antithesis of life. What then is life? Well, in the Bible, life is always described and defined in terms of our relationship to God. 
Take the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in John 17.3, And this is life eternal, that they may know Thee, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. That is life. What is death? The opposite of that. God is the author of life, who alone hath life and immortality. He is the source of life, the sustainer of life. God is life and gives life. And apart from God, there is no life. So we can define life like this. Life is to know God. To be in relationship to God. To enjoy God. To correspond with God. To be like God. To share the life of God. And to be blessed of God. According to the Bible, that is life. Therefore, as we come to define death, We must define it as the opposite of all that. As a result, this spiritually dead man is ignorant of spiritual things. Paul instructs us elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually appraised. Like the man who's physically dead can't laugh at a joke. He can't feel anything. He doesn't perceive the things of this world. His senses are gone. He has no means of communication. And so the spiritually dead find the Bible boring, and worship is boring, and the Christian life is boring, and, oh, but the things of this world, they're they're not boring at all. He is alive to the world, but not to God. And like all dead things, the spiritually dead are corrupt. When Jesus said to take away the stone at the tomb of Lazarus, his sister Martha said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he's been dead for four days. That's a good description of man's spiritual death as well. God is holy and pure, but we are corrupt and defiled We bury the dead to separate them from the living. The truth about the living dead, these zombies, there are zombies. That's what Paul's talking about. We were dead in our trespasses and sins while we were still breathing, while we were still moving, while we still walked. We were dead. The truth about these zombies is they're miserable. Now, there's a cover. There's a facade out there that tries to tell us otherwise. Problem? What problem? Much like the emperor's new clothes here. The rich, the powerful, the beautiful, the talented. You ever look behind the scenes? Have you ever maybe just looked down the road a little bit? Let's see how they're doing today. Let's see how they're doing next year. And five years out, ten years out. I've been noticing all these hot celebrities from when I was young are old. Really old. Some of them are dying. And a lot of them are divorced, are in jail, are addicted. Why? They're rich and famous and powerful and beautiful. They had it all. That's old news. We've moved on to the new crop 
of the young and the beautiful and the talented and the rich and the famous. It's a conveyor belt. Ichabod, which means the glory is departed, could be tattooed on every forehead of every sinner. Life without the blessing of God is miserable. Paul goes on to tell us in this passage that such people live according to the course of the world. Or as Paul refers to it in Galatians 1 for this present evil age. The problem with dead things is that they are carried along by the current. The word world is being used to describe a worldview without God. It is a way of trying to live apart from God. And the result is that we are completely controlled by the world that's around us. The opinions, the fads, the trends, the images of the world create a swirl. They create a vortex in which we are caught up, in which we circle the drain. And thus Paul exhorts us in Romans 12, too, to be not conformed to the world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. The world is a tyrant that demands conformity. Political correctness is simply the latest in a long history of so-called progressive demands. But this world that we are following is ruled, the text says, by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. The spirit here refers to a principle of evil that is at work directing the course of this world. Everything has meaning. Everything you watch on television, everything you wear, everything you do, everything everybody else does has meaning. Now, we don't always know exactly what the meaning is. That's part of, the, it's part of how the devil works. You're not supposed to ask questions. You're supposed to swallow whole. Just, just accept it. It's what everybody's doing, and you want to be part of everybody, right? You're going along with the flow. But they're selling you something all the time. And it does mean something, whether you figure out what it means or not. And that meaning ultimately will have consequences in your life and in the life of our culture and the life of our world. The prince of the power of the air, and yes, I do refer to the devil, and I do think he is as real as God is. I know that's old-fashioned. He'd like everybody else to think that too. Man thinks he has emancipated himself from God only to enslave himself to the devil. As Bob Dylan put it, you've got to serve somebody. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. If men can be convicted, convinced that all there is is what they can see or feel or taste or hear or smell, then he will be dead to the spiritual realm. He's now under the control of the prince of the power of the air. So, I want to conclude today by talking about an important doctrine that we need to have clear, and that's the doctrine of original sin. Why is man in this condition? Paul tells us that we are sons of disobedience. Do you remember the words of Jesus? He said, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father 
you want to do. You want to do. Disobedience is what has led to all of our troubles. I can't think of a trouble you have that's not rooted in this somewhere. It's the active and deliberate departure from obedience to God. It's rebellion against His right to tell us what to do. It is the creature challenging the Creator. Our love of self, our pride, our self-importance is at the root of that rebellion. It is our desire to be our own God, and that is what started the whole mess. Like Satan, we are offended by the idea that we are creatures who are subordinate. And as a result, we want to express our self-sufficiency. The Bible says that man was made by God and made for God. That we are dependent upon God. And that we can only be happy when we obey God. But we think we're competent to make our own determination about life, to determine good and evil for ourselves. And this is why the world is in the mess and the chaos that we see. Misery and death are the result of our declaration of independence. I had to work that in today's sermon. Let me say it again. Misery and death are the result of our declaration of independence from God. Moreover, our disobedience goes further to the point of enmity. Romans 8, 6-7, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal or fleshly mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God. God's not going to tell me what to do, nor indeed can be. Our wills are now bound to sin. Is your will free? Well, in a sense, it's free to follow your nature. You're free to fall down, but you're not free to fall up. We sin deliberately. We even glory in our sins. What we can't do is will to do positive good. In the, in, the, in the way the Bible describes what true good is. Ephesians 2, 3 describes our condition further with these words, and we were by nature, Paul says, children of wrath, just as the others. We are born with a disobedient nature. Sometimes parents, in an excuse, in an effort to excuse the bad behavior of their children, maybe you've done this, we're all tempted to do this, is to say, you know, Johnny learned to hit from Billy there at church Sunday. My, you know, little Johnny, my Johnny never hit anybody, but he, he played with Billy, and Billy taught him how to hit, and he came home and he hit his sister. Bad Billy. I assure you that while Johnny might have had some training from Billy, Johnny did not need Billy to learn how to be violent. He might have needed another week or three weeks before he figured it out all by himself because it was built in. And lest you get proud, he got it from you. The world wants to blame it on environment or ignorance, but the Bible says it's built in. 
It started with a sinless man and a sinless woman in a perfect environment. They used their free will to sin and thereby corrupted the whole human race, and thus we are born of a sinful nature. The world provides a place where we can express those sinful and rebellious desires. It's not that we are all right and then we just happen to sin. Before we act out a sin, the inclination to do so is already within us. We are sinners who, given the opportunity, commit particular sins. That so-called innocent baby is simply waiting for an opportunity to sin. Maybe they're not articulate yet. Maybe they're just not mobile yet. I like to say they're in the planning stage. They're thinking, hmm, I can't get to that just yet, but as soon as I can, I'm going straight for it. Because I know I'm not supposed to. If the problem is simply the environment, then we must fix the environment, right? And so we've got a whole host of people tell us that. Man is basically good, right? He just needs some help. He needs some training. We need to coach him. We need to provide a better environment. Listen to the founder of public education, Horace Mann. He wrote in the Common School Journal in 1841, and listen to his prophecy. The common school, the public school, is the institution which can receive and train up children in all the elements of good knowledge and of virtue before they are subjected to the alienating competitions of life. This institution is the greatest discovery ever made by man. In two grand characteristic attributes, it is supereminent over all others, first in its universality, for it is capacious enough to receive and cherish in its paternal bosom every child that comes into the world. And second, in the timeliness of that aid, it proffers its early seasonal supplies of counsel and guidance, making security anodate danger. Other, other social organizations are curative and remedial. This is a preventative and an antidote. They come to heal diseases and wounds. This to make the physical and moral frame less vulnerable to them. Let the common school, the public school, be expanded to its full capacities. Let it be worked with the efficiency of which it is susceptible and here, nine-tenths of the crimes and the penal code will become obsolete. The long catalog of human ills would be abridged. More would walk more safely by day. Every pillow would be more inviolable by night. Property, life, and character held by stronger tenure. All rational hopes Respecting the future brightens. Don't you feel better now? This is not some obscure person writing. This is one of the movers and the shakers that has driven the culture for the last 150 plus years. And he's not alone. There's a host 
of social engineers who think they can fix the problem. But if the problem is in us, then we are what needs fixing. And it's not just a few of us. Paul says that we all once conducted ourselves this way. The sin problem is universal. There are no exceptions. Even the so-called good and decent people are sinful by nature. All men in all times and all places. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking only in terms of particular acts rather than in terms of our relationship to God. But God requires what? That we love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you're not doing that, you're a sinner. Man's chief end, the main reason he's here, is to glorify God. Lloyd-Jones again summarizes it this way. That is man in sin, and it is true, and it's true universality. Excuse me, and it's true universally. There is only one adequate explanation for this. It is what is given at the beginning of the book of Genesis. It is the biblical doctrine of the fall and of original sin. You cannot understand the modern world apart from the doctrine of original sin. It has all come about in this way. One man, Adam, the representative of humanity, sinned, rebelled, and fell, and the consequences have devolved upon all his progeny. I defy you to explain the universality of sin in any other terms. It simply cannot be done. Every other theory breaks down. That is why we must believe the early chapters of Genesis if we are to believe the New Testament. And so we come now to the third power that works against us in this text today. And he's already mentioned the world and the devil. And now he comes to address the problem of the flesh. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. As trespassers, remember trespasses and sins, as trespassers we left the domain that God had given to us. We set out on our own and we found ourselves under the compelling influence of the world and the flesh and the devil. When Adam fell, we fell with him, and every part of us fell, our minds and our bodies. And this is what Paul means in this instance when he refers to the flesh. Everyone, everyone lives according to the lust of our flesh. Again, Lloyd-Jones, of what is the apostle thinking? He is thinking of hunger and thirst, the desire for sleep, the desire for pleasure, the desire for happiness, the desire for contentment, sex, the desire to attract and be attractive. Now, all those things are essential, are an essential part of our bodily animal nature makeup. There is that side of man, and it has been made by God, and therefore, in and of itself, it is essentially good. And there is nothing wrong in it. Therefore, in and of itself, again, it is essentially good. Excuse me. Man was made thus by God and endowed with these various qualities and powers and propensities and instincts, and they are all good. When God had made man in addition to the rest of creation, he looked upon it all, man included, and saw that it was good. Well, what is the apostle talking about? He is describing man in sin. How does sin 
show itself. It shows itself like this. These things which in and of themselves are right and good suddenly take control. Become imperious in their demands. Begin to assert themselves and drive us. There is very good, a very good scriptural term, which is even better. It talks about inordinate affections. There's nothing wrong in your being hungry, but if you live to eat, it is all wrong. If the desire for food is controlling you, you're suffering from the desires of the flesh. And it's a manifestation of the lust of the flesh. And it applies to sleep. For we are meant to sleep, but there is such a thing as being a glutton for sleep. And at that point, it has become a desire of the flesh and can ruin a man. Likewise, with pleasure, pleasure is all right. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. But then when pleasure begins to dominate and becomes so important that you are prepared to quarrel with people about it, then it has become a desire or a lust of the flesh. Need I say anything about sex? God ordains sex, but God never ordains sexuality and the modern sex mania. God never ordained the kind of thing that is starting uh, staring at us and glaring at us in the newspapers every day. That is not the thing God made. That is man extracting sex out of its setting, isolating it, painting it up, placarding it with the result that it is dominating life. God made us to control these things, to use them to create order in the world. Instead, they have now gained control over us, driving us, owning us. But this lust of the flesh extends to the mind and the intellect as well. This includes both thought and emotion. We have as much trouble with our minds as we do our bodies. Desire starts in the mind, and if it's contrary to God, then it is a lust of the flesh. Just consider quickly jealousy, envy, malice, pride, hatred, wrath, bitterness. What are they but manifestations of the desires of the mind? Have you ever been controlled by one of those, one or more of those? And so we have not quite finished with the diagnosis of our condition before God. We will address a few more next week. But let me draw your attention back to Paul's opening words of this chapter, because I want to end with hope. Yes, you were thoroughly dead, but you he made alive. Can you imagine the joy you would feel if a loved one who had died was brought back to life. In your helpless, hopeless condition, that is what God has done for you in Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for telling us the truth about ourselves. We know that your word tells us that sin is deceitful and indeed we have all fallen prey to this deceit. We tend to minimize, ignore, or justify our sin. We even grow callous to our guilt and comfortable with our sins. 
May the Holy Spirit powerfully apply the truth of your word to our hearts and minds that we might truly see our condition apart from Christ and flee to you. In the words of the old hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Colossians 2, 11-15 says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. In this parallel passage to Ephesians 2, Paul tells us that our baptism was the picture of God's powerful work, buried and raised in Christ, taken from the realm of death and darkness into the realm of the resurrected. All earthly powers having been defeated and disarmed. You remember I've talked to you about this before, but remind you of that image of the Romans and the Jews having nailed Jesus to the cross and put him on public display. Utter humiliation. An utter display of their power to kill and destroy. But the resurrection was God's declaration that that power was nothing. That there was a power that exceeded that power. The ultimate power. The power over death. And so he disarmed all principalities and powers. All of your sins have been forgiven. And the wrath of God averted. And now, as his adopted children, we are invited to this family table to eat. To remember. To give thanks. And to be renewed once again. Almighty God, who in former times led our fathers from a wilderness to a wealthy place and did set our feet in a large room, we humbly ask you to give your grace to us, their children, that we may always prove ourselves to be a people mindful of your favor and glad to do your will. Bless our land with sound doctrine, righteous laws, godly people. Defend our liberties and preserve our unity. Save us from violence and discord and confusion, from pride and arrogance and from every evil way. Take the nations of the world, men and women from every race and tongue, and form us into one nation under God. Endue with, with, with the spirit of wisdom those whom we entrust in your name with the authority to govern, so that there may be peace at home and that we may keep our place among the nations of the earth. 
Lord, our nation has forgotten your law and often calls evil good and good evil. Send out your word to conquer the nations and to return sanity, peace, and true kindness to the world. In the time of prosperity, temper us with thankfulness. And in the days of trouble, do not allow our trust in you to fail. Grant us this day joy in the Holy Spirit. Bless our feast and our rest as we offer up our praise and gratitude, all of which we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.